Let's pray together. Our great God, we are so thankful, God, that we can come set under the preaching of your word. We're thankful that you have gifted Pastor David, Lord, in such a way to rightly divide your word week after week for your people. God, we pray as we come to this time of our worship service that you would help us to cast the cares of the world aside. Lord, that we would be able to focus solely on you and on your word. And God, we pray that you would give our pastor courage and strength to boldly proclaim your word. And we pray that it would be effectual and drawing sinners to yourself. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As you're taking your seat, if you would turn with me, please, to Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Pardon me a moment. All right. Our text this morning will be verses 14 through 18 in Mark's Gospel. We looked at this same text last week. I'm going to read the, the same text again this week, and we're, we're going to work through a little bit more of what's happening here. This is the first time, you know, Mark's recording the first time that Jesus has appeared publicly and began to teach. And we saw last time, Mark records very simply, very, very succinctly, the essence of the message. This isn't the exhaustive description of all the words that Jesus preached, but this is the essence of what he preached. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so last week we said that we think of the kingdom in two ways. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is coming. So last week we looked at that, that, that sermon title, that heading, the kingdom has come, and we asked a series of questions. What is the kingdom? We needed a definition of the kingdom. And the answer from the scriptures is that the kingdom of God is the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people on earth and in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised descendant of King David. And he will rule forever. So the kingdom of God is that spiritual rule. It's an internal kingdom, spiritual kingdom, but it has external effects that are observable. Well, then we ask, who is the king in this kingdom? And it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that all the scriptures and prophets spoke about in advance. And that those who have citizenship in this kingdom are those who have received this gospel. The gospel, properly speaking, is the proclamation of good news. It is the proclamation that Jesus Christ has come, that the Son of God, eternal, complete, truly God, has come, assumed to himself our human flesh, lived a perfect life, obedient to God in every jot and tittle of the word. He was crucified on our behalf, was raised from the dead, and has ascended to heaven, is seated now at God's right hand. And to believe that, to receive that gospel, makes one a, king, a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And the fruit thereof is ongoing faith and repentance. The focus today is not that the kingdom has come, that's true, but also that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is being revealed bit by bit. Increasingly, the kingdom is being revealed. I had originally had three questions before us this morning. I don't think we're going to get to the third one. Just full disclosure. Uh, as an act of mercy, perhaps, we'll forego the third one until next time. But I'm going to put it before you anyway. The first question we want to wrestle with today is, what, is, what authority does this kingdom possess? What authority does this kingdom possess? Secondly, how is this kingdom governed? In other words, how is that authority then expressed? And thirdly, and this was somewhat of a trick question, but I'm going to put it before you. How does the kingdom grow and spread? How does the kingdom grow and spread? Again, I suspect that will be the question for next time. 
Let's read the text here in Mark, in Mark chapter 1. I'm beginning, begin, going to begin in verse 14. Jesus has said, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what we're thinking about and what comes next, not only in this section, but the rest of the next several chapters is, what does this look like? What does it mean that the kingdom is at hand? So here now, this is the word of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they came to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing the man and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So as we begin to see here this kingdom breaking forth, it's like the clouds have departed and here is the sun beginning to shine. As as the kingdom breaks forth, what kind of authority do we begin to witness? And what we find here is just the seed form of the authority of King Jesus on display. What what authority do we observe in this very passage. Well, we see several marks of authority in this one passage. Look with me here. When we see Jesus coming and the very first proclamation he makes is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we find here is the authority of King Jesus to offer and to command reconciliation with God. He has the the authority both to offer and even command reconciliation to God. We can think of it maybe and illustrate it this way. It's like a, a prosecutor who has limited authority to offer a plea to someone who's been charged with a crime. And yet, I've been an eyewitness to this in a courtroom where we petitioned the judge to reject a plea that was unjust. A prosecutor had offered a plea bargain, and it was unjust on its face, and we petitioned the judge, and the judge had the authority to reject that plea. See, the prosecutor's authority was limited, both in its scope and its breadth. But that's not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the authority as the Son of God, as the King of Kings, to say, I'm offering you a plea. I'm offering you terms of settlement. I'm offering you reconciliation through my own body and blood to be reconciled to the God against whom you have sinned grievously. That's authority, isn't it? See, later on, The the Pharisees and the scribes would quarrel with Jesus about about healing someone on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, what's more difficult? What's more difficult? To say, rise and walk, or to say your sins are forgiven? 
See, only God has the authority to forgive sin. I don't have that authority. And any, any preacher, any clergyman who says he does is a liar. The whole system of Rome is built upon a lie that the priests have the authority to absolve someone of sin. Only God has that authority. And here is the kingdom authority breaking in to this age where Jesus says, be reconciled to God. Hear this gospel and believe it. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this, this crystal clear to us. In 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 18, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You just, just listen. So I'm going to read a short passage. All this is from God. He's speaking about this gospel message. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, this is kingdom authority. Every time the gospel is preached, every time the gospel is heralded, every time the gospel is proclaimed and sinners are told, be reconciled to God, that's an expression of kingly authority. Paul calls it an ambassadorship. An ambassador doesn't speak from his own authority. He speaks as, a, as one delegated by the governing authority to offer terms of peace. So we see the kingdom of authority displayed here. Again, in seed form. It's, this kingdom is coming. We're beginning to see this. And we're gonna, if you read through the book of Acts, you see again and again and again an expression of this authority. As the gospel is preached, as churches are being established, men and women and boys and girls are, are offered terms of surrender to God, commanded to believe the gospel and be reconciled to God. But that's not the only uh, means of authority or kind of authority that we see on display here in Mark chapter 1. Look what happens next in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And they did. Then we see him doing the same with James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. He calls them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. See, what we find here is the kingdom authority to call men to leave their ordinary vocations, their, their, their lawful employments, and serve the kingdom full time. We see the authority of Christ to do that. And if you'll turn over just a page to your right in Mark chapter 3, there in verse 13, Mark 3, 13 and he went up, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. See, Mark makes it explicit. They weren't called just to, to walk alongside him and carry his bags and his water. No, they were called to proclaim this gospel. And Jesus had the authority as the king in this kingdom to call them to such labors. But notice something else. It is not only that Jesus has expresses a kingly authority over the men that he calls. Look what he says to them. He says to Simon and, and Peter, I mean, to Simon and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I will make you become fishers of men. See, this is an apt illustration. It's a, it's a great illustration of gospel ministry. And you don't have to be an expert in fishing. You don't have to be a commercial fisherman. You don't even have to be a regular you know, sport fisherman to understand the reality of fishing. When you fish, you don't always catch something, right? Any, any young boy, young girl with a, with a Snoopy fishing pole has figured out you don't always catch something. 
no matter how good the bait is, no matter how good the circumstances are, you don't always catch something. One day, you might be successful. The next day, working just as hard, being just as diligent, being just as prayerful in the gospel ministry, it can be fruitless. Your boat remains empty. It's a good illustration of gospel ministry. But in this, Jesus is also declaring not only is he king over those who preach, but he's lord of the fish also. He's lord of the fish also. Turn with me to Luke's gospel. Just one gospel to your right. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. In Luke chapter 5, this this is an amazing scene. In Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, now, if, if you know anything about fishing, this, this scene is, is, is powerful. And it shows the Lord Jesus having authority, not over the fishermen only, but over the fish. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little farther from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Basically, speaking from the boat across the water creates a sort of a natural amplification. His voice would carry across the water, and the crowds had been pressing in on him. Then in verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, a seasoned fisherman would have seen multiple problems immediately. Number one, they were already cleaning their nets, which tells us they'd given up for the day. Number two, you don't do net fishing in deep water. That's a shallow water endeavor. Thirdly, you don't fish in the heat of the day, especially not in the deep water. The fish are down deep. That's where they go when the sun gets hot. But he tells Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Simon, this is understandable, as as a seasoned fisherman, he protests. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do you see how Jesus is showing them? When he says, he says to them, I will make you fishers of men. And, and, and naturally, the disciples would think, okay, well, that's that's nice metaphorical expression. But what does it really mean? And he illustrates it in the most powerful way I can imagine to to other fishermen. To say, you think you know the fish. You think you know how fish are caught. But I'm going to show you I'm Lord of the fish. I, the ones whom I call, are going to come into my net. It's not dependent upon a method. It's not dependent upon your creativity. It's not dependent upon your skill. It's not dependent upon your seasoned experience. What does it depend on? The word of the king. The word of the king who proves himself to be lord of even the fish of the sea. So we see a kingly authority here demonstrated with not only the, the authority to call men out of their ordinary vocations to preach the gospel, but an assurance to them that all whom I have appointed to life will hear and respond to the gospel message. That's kingly authority, isn't it? 
We also see something else. We see this here in verse, no, still in Mark 3, back to Mark 1. And when, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So what we find bursting forth as the kingdom is coming is now the authority to command men to be obedient to him. He has a kingly authority to command obedience. The scribes could not do that. All the scribes could do was repeat, repeat the traditions of men. They could recite the Torah, they could recite the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't understand its meaning. And they were not the author of those scriptures. Jesus could teach in a unique way as one who internally, in and of his own person, possessed the authority to say, this is what the Lord requires of you. This is what it means to obey the Lord. This is what it means to follow after God. The scribes could not do that. So there's, a, there's an authority to command obedience to the king. Well, that, that kingly authority is still on display. Week by week by week, day by day, as you're reading your Bibles on your own, or as you are hearing the word of God proclaimed publicly, you, you, that is an expression of Jesus as the king, saying, this is what I require of you. This is what I command of my people. There is a kingly authority on display here with respect to his, his, um, his authority to command obedience. And it's an authority to command obedience not to something else or to someone else, but to himself. See, the scribes could say, you need to obey God, you need to obey Moses, or you need to obey the commands. But Jesus said, you need to obey me. Another way we see here related to this, this same thing is the authority to teach the mind and will of God the authority to teach the mind and will of God. Later on, Paul would say that no one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. We worship a God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and yet one God. Jesus, as the second person in the Godhead, could speak the mind of God, the will of God, perfectly, infallibly, like no mere man could ever do. He could teach what God says is true, what God says is right, what God says is necessary. I think about the, in, the, in the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet, the Lord rebuked the false prophets who said they went ahead and spoke where God had not spoken. They said, God said this, but God hadn't said that. Or they would say, God didn't say that. And yet God had said that. Of course, that was the first lie from the serpent, wasn't it? To Eve, hath God really said? You know, and, and as our children were young, um, I think all of them learned this while they were young, so it hasn't been while they were older, but while they were young, one of the most severe penalties in my house was to tell a sibling, Mom said this, and Mom had not spoken thus. Or dad said this, but dad had not said that. Not only was it dishonest, see, in, in our house, we didn't treat all sins the same. And as a parent, we need, to, we need to imitate God in that. Not all sins are the same. They're all equally, just, uh, equally and justly deserving of his wrath, but not all are equally punished or equally severe. But to speak of falsehood was an extra measure of offense. But to speak that falsehood into the name of your father or in the name of your mother was far worse. To say, mom said, you have to do this. You can imagine the disorder in a home if that's allowed to, to continue. But how much more? And Jesus says about us, if you being evil know how, to, know how to give good gifts to your children, basically if you know, according to common grace, how to be decent parents... How much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to his children 
Do you think God's patience will abide on someone who dares to speak for him where he has not spoken? To lay commands and burdens upon his people that he has not laid upon them? That's no small offense, saints. Or to neglect God's word and say, he hasn't said that. He hasn't prohibited that. That's a grievous sin. That's not a small sin in the eyes of God. And Jesus here we see as the kingdom begins to break forth, Jesus has the authority to speak the will of God infallibly, perfectly. Evidence of kingdom authority, isn't it? And lastly, we see evidence here we see an expression of kingly authority in the Lord Jesus' ability to command evil spirits. And it's a foreshadowing of his authority over death itself. See, death is the dominion of Satan. Death is a product of the fall. It's a product of sin. It's the domain of darkness. It's the dominion of the kingdom of the, of the prince of the power of this air. And Jesus, as he, we see here, immediately they're confronted in the synagogue. Can you imagine that church service? I mean, sometimes you have interruptions in a church service, you know, a baby crying, or maybe I, one time we had, uh, my co-elder at the time was preaching, and we had a lady just pass out right there on the second row. And men had to get and carry her out. She was fine. But sometimes distractions, disruptions happen. But I've never had a demon-possessed man among us. Had some kids that maybe we, we suspected that. No, that's a, <clears throat> not recently. But Jesus demonstrate, demonstrates an authority over evil spirits. Listen, listen to what the evil spirit says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? They know. The demons know who he is. And all he has to do is speak. Come out of it come out of him. Be silent. And it's done. This is an expression of kingly authority. And as the kingdom bursts forth, we see more and more evidence in the ministry of Jesus over unclean spirits. We see him delegate that authority even to his apostles. We see authority over death itself. We don't have time today, but you could turn to John chapter 11, one of my favorite passages, the death of Lazarus. Lazarus is three days in the tomb. Even the people around him, and I love the King James, they said, Lord, by now he stinketh. I mean, they recognize the ordinary course of death is decomposition has begun. And Jesus just merely speaks. Lazarus, come forth. And out of the grave he came alive. Listen to one biblical scholar describe this, this phenomenon with the kingdom. He says, this is the good news about the kingdom of God, how men need this gospel. Everywhere one goes today, he finds the gaping grave swallowing up the dying. Tears of loss, of separation, of final departure stain every face. Every table, sooner or later, has an empty chair. Every fireside, it's vacant place. Death is the great leveler. Wealth or poverty, fame or oblivion, power or futility, success or failure, race, creed, culture, all our human distinctions mean nothing before the ultimate irresistible sweep of the scythe of death, which cuts us all down. And whether the mausoleum is a fabulous Taj Mahal, a massive pyramid, an unmarked spot of ragged grass, or the unplotted depths of the sea, one fact stands, death reigns. That's what marks this age, isn't it? He goes on to say, apart from the gospel of the kingdom, death is the mighty conqueror before whom we are all helpless. We can only beat our fists and utter futility against this unyielding and unresponding tomb. But the good news is this. Death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Our conqueror has been conquered in the face of the power of the kingdom of God in Christ. Death was helpless. It could not hold him. 
Death has been defeated. Life and immortality have been brought to life. An empty tomb in Jerusalem is proof of it. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Amen. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Saints, when you meditate upon the kingdom authority revealed in and through Christ, as the kingdom is coming, how does that shape your view of this world? How does it shape your understanding of your own present suffering? How does it shape your perspective of the suffering around you in the world at large? How does it change the way you view the Scripture's command to worship Him according to the elements and according to the means that He has given to us? If these things are true, and and they are, if, if, if the kingdom of God is breaking forth, and this is the evidence of His authority already, And how does that shape how we respond? How does that shape how we worship? Do we think, we're in charge, we can do whatever we please. We can worship according to our own preferences, our own own delights, our, our own ideas. Or do we fall on our face before this mighty king and say, Lord, what would you have us do? How do we live before you? How does this necessarily shape your view of, of authority in general, whether it's authority in the home or in the church or in the civil sphere? If this is the, the, the nature of the authority of Christ, how does that inform our understandings of authority in general? See, our passage today in Mark 1 gives us a, a foretaste. Saints, it's just an appetizer of the kingly authority that is breaking in upon this age and a full expression of that authority that will be revealed on the day that the trumpet sounds and Christ returns in glory. So this kingdom, God's kingdom, has real and true authority. But then the question flows from that naturally. It's okay, but how is that, how is that authority exercised? How is the kingdom governed in this age? So that's the question that I want to wrestle with now. How is the kingdom of God governed? We've seen these foretastes of the nature of his authority. It's an authority to to, to proclaim the gospel and, and, and command men to be reconciled to God. It's an authority to call men to leave their ordinary occupations and preach the gospel. It's an authority over the fish to hear and believe and to be gathered into the nets. It's an authority to command obedience and and to teach the will and the mind of God. It's an authority over evil spirits and over even death itself. Well, then how is that authority demonstrated? How is it governed in the kingdom? Well, the short answer is by the word and the spirit of Christ. By the word and the spirit of Christ in and among his people. That's the short answer. But the sermon's not over yet. I'm going to give you a longer answer. But you already knew that, didn't you? We've already noted that Jesus began calling his apostles. Uh, We see Simon and Andrew. We see James and John. Chapter 3, a reference earlier, we see the the full measure of the 12 called. And Jesus says clearly there that he's calling them for this purpose, to proclaim the gospel. Jesus' own words, his own purpose statement for his apostles was to proclaim the gospel. Well, then when we turn to the end of the gospel, we see how this all ends. I hope I'm not spoiling it for you. Jesus has died. Jesus is crucified. He's dead. He's buried. But he's raised from the grave. And in Matthew's account, in Matthew 28, the the last few verses of Matthew's gospel, is is there we have what we call the Great Commission. And in that, as, as all the disciples are then gathered together with Jesus at Galilee, Jesus there makes it abundantly clear how his kingdom authority is to be exercised, how his kingdom is to be governed in this age. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, see, everything hinges in the Great Commission upon that first statement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. By virtue of his perfect life, his submission to God, his obedience to death, even upon the death upon the cross, God has then given him a name above every name. That at the name of the Lord, the name of Kurios, 
every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. And, and Jesus is, on account of that, go. I'm sending you. And here's the purpose of my sending you. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's not talking about nation states. It's about every people group, of every ethnicity. Go to all the peoples of the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and command them to obey all that I have commanded you. Whatsoever I have said, tell them to obey that. And then he attaches to that a promise, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is the kingdom mandate. This is the way in which his, his kingdom authority is expressed. He doesn't say, go to the halls of the legislatures. He doesn't say, go to the kings and the executives. He doesn't say, go to the judiciary. Go establish churches in my name. Proclaim this gospel. Remember, Peter, the nets that you couldn't get into the boat? That's what I will do. If you will speak in my name, you will not be able to contain the fish that will be brought in. And when I've brought them in, baptize them. Publicly identify them with me. Unite them to my people in the name of the triune God and then teach them, disciple them, instruct them in what kingdom citizenship looks like in every sphere of life. Remember, our kingdom definition is the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people, both in heaven and on earth through the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised descendant of David, who will rule and reign forever. And we see this expressed. The apostles began to, to understand this by the power of the Holy Spirit and began to teach this to the churches. In Ephesians 4, for example, Paul's describing this, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says in verse 8 of Ephesians 4, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul explains. He, he exposits this, this Old Testament text, and he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he who also had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, Here's an expression of kingly authority on an ongoing basis in the church of Jesus Christ. The risen and exalted Christ is the one by the person of his spirit who calls men as pastors, as teachers, so that the people of God will hear and believe that word, obey that word, and thereby, by the power of the spirit, be conformed more and more and more to the very image of their Savior. This is kingly rule. This is kingly governance within this world. Kingdom authority is demonstrated as Christ governs his church through the calling of men to preach his gospel of reconciliation, but also as he brings about growth and fruitfulness within and, and among his people. This is, this is kingdom governance. Through the ministry of the word, by the power of his spirit, Christ perfects his people. He builds up his body in a unity of faith. He brings his people together to full maturity according to his own image. This is kingdom governance. But kingdom authority is certainly not limited to that. 
It's not limited to, to the calling of men to preach and sanctifying his people. Jesus also governs his people through correction. Think about this, and we won't turn there, but just, just think about this. In Matthew 16, there's this exchange with the disciples, and Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And some say Jeremiah, and some Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, for, for a moment, gets it right. Peter steps forward, speaking on behalf of the twelve, says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, of course, responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for blood, uh, flesh and blood is not given to this to you, but my Father in heaven has given this to you. Upon this rock, meaning this statement, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he goes on to, to describe that he's going to give them keys of a kingdom. See, he has authority. So I'm going to grant to you, not to Peter. Peter's not a pope. He's giving it to the church. I'm going to grant you these keys. Now, what does a key do? You have keys to your cars. You have keys to, well, we used to have keys to our cars. We don't anymore, do we? We have an electronic thing. But we have keys to our houses. What does a key do? It opens and shuts, doesn't it? It opens and shuts. And Jesus, I'm going to give you keys by which you will open and shut the kingdom. By opening, you will cast out nets, and I will sovereignly bring fish in. But that key works to the other door, too, to lock it, to keep men out, to identify false confessors, and those who have made a false profession, but by their, by their deeds, by their conduct, or by their beliefs, they betray the fact that they really are not Christians after all. And the keys must be exercised to remove them. So we see just two chapters later in Matthew's gospel, the way in which these keys are then exercised. In Matthew 18, here we have a passage on church discipline. And Jesus gives this scenario. If your brother has offended you, if your brother has sinned against you, what do you do? You go to him in private. And you confront your brother, and Jesus says, if, you, if he hears you, wonderful, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, you go and you take two or three witnesses with you in keeping with the law. You take two or three witnesses with you to establish the matter. If he will not listen to the witnesses, what do you do? Well, this is evidence of a brother or sister who is hardening themselves, who is not listening. What do you do? Well, it may be that this has to go before the whole church. And Jesus says, if he tell it to the church, and if he will not listen even to the church, as all of his brothers and sisters, as all of her brothers and sisters plead with them, please, brother, please, sister, obey the word of Christ. Submit yourself to his kingly rule. And Jesus says, if he will not listen, even to the church, remember what Jesus says? Let them be to you like a sinner or a tax collector. A sinner is one who is outside the covenant. They're not a kingdom citizen. Treat them as if they are not a kingdom citizen. Or treat them like a tax collector. Now, the Jews immediately understood what he meant. Those were those who had rebelled. These were disloyal. These were the traitors to the kingdom. His kingly rule, his kingly authority is not only the key to the front door, as we'd say, but to the back as well. And a church has to be willing to govern and exercise the authority that Christ has given to her and say, welcome, brother, welcome, sister. We're going to do that here in a couple of weeks with nine new members to GFBC Conroe. We're thrilled about that. We have a baptism service coming up in a few weeks. Thrilled about that. That's an exercise of the keys of the kingdom. Not because we have created life, not because we have done anything, except exercise the authority that God has given to us. We've also known, sadly, times in our church history, we've had to exercise the keys to remove one from among us. And it would be a great neglect of the authority that Christ has delegated to us if we would not do that, if we refuse to do it. And I know many of you have, can testify to the tragedies that have happened in churches of which you've been a part, where the members, the leadership, refuse to deal with sin and refuse to exercise church discipline, refuse to exercise the authority that Christ has delegated to his people. See, it doesn't make sense for us to say on the one hand that we acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King, 
but then to go ahead and act as if we're free to do whatever we want to do. See, that's, as I'm talking to the brothers about going to this, this to Cuba, and I leave tomorrow, one of the, the, the issues that they're facing is, is Christian liberty. And, and as I've thought about it, it's the same error that we have, it's just on the opposite end. See, in, in, in America, especially Texas, the struggle we have is we hear the doctrine of Christian liberty. What we hear, we filter that through an enlightenment view of liberty, which is no one tells me what to do. By golly, I'm my own man. I set my own rules. I'm, as a Christian, I'm free. And we discount all the passages of the Scriptures that speak to us about responsibility, about duty, about obedience and submission. But our brothers in Cuba have the same error, but on the opposite end of the spectrum. We're trying to communicate to them certain things where they're free in Christ. And they don't have a category for liberty. They don't know what that means. What do you mean I'm free? I'm told what to do. I don't, to, to have, to choose between two equally awful things, I don't have the, the category to do that. See, as we think about kingly authority, we need to think in both ways. And sometimes Christians who have come out of a more legalistic or fundamentalist kind of strain of Christianity struggle in, in a similar way. What do you mean I'm free? Well, you mean I can choose to eat that or not eat that? And, and I'm okay with God either way? Or I can drink that or not drink that and, and I'm, my standing before God is, is, is indifferent? That's exactly what that means. You're responsible to God, you're responsible to your brothers and sisters and the rules of causing no one to stumble on account of your behavior still applies. But you're free. So we have to work these things out in our minds, don't we? Uh, we want sometimes, uh, Bella has been doing paint-by-numbers um, paintings and they're beautiful. And Sometimes we want the Christian life to be a paint-by-number. Just tell me what color to put in what square and my picture will turn out great. Right? doesn't work that way, saints. God has called us to submit ourselves to his authority, but to take responsibility for our words and for our actions. In 1 John, the apostle's working out some of this. And I think sometimes we don't think about this as, as kingdom language, but it is precisely kingdom language. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning verse 4, the apostle says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's kingdom language. See, there is an authority, there is an ethic for the kingdom. Jesus says, teach them to obey whatsoever I've commanded them. And John says, lawlessness is the antithesis of the kingdom of God, isn't it? See, lawlessness is associated with that other kingdom, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. But John goes on to say this, you know that he appeared, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous, or as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Do you see the line that he's drawing between two kingdoms? There's the kingdom of Christ, the spiritual kingdom by which he governs, the hearts and lives of his people. And there's the kingdom of darkness that demonstrates that someone is governed according to the ethics, according to the rules, according to the will of another king. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He has been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, John is not teaching perfectionism here. He's not saying that you can achieve a sinless state in this life. What he is saying is that those who are kingdom citizens don't pet their sins. They don't keep them as pets. They don't indulge willfully, perpetually, thinking there is no consequence. That's a characteristic of the, of the other kingdom, of the kingdom of the devil. If we think that we are free to do whatever we please without being accountable to our king or to other members of his kingdom, it's either that we don't understand the true nature of the kingdom or that we've not become members of it, not become citizens of it. How does it make sense to claim the Lord Jesus as king and yet neglect the very means, the very commands that he has established to sanctify us according to his spirit's power? So we've worked through this. The spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people is the kingdom of God in this age, on earth and in heaven, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised son of David who will rule and reign forever. So today, if you're not in this kingdom, you have a duty. There's a command placed before you today to believe this gospel. To believe that Christ is who he said he is. That he has done what he said he would do. That he's offered himself once for all time for sinners. And in him and him alone can one be reconciled to God. So it is your duty today. If you are not in this kingdom, if you are not in Christ, it is pressed upon you by the scriptures that you must obey him. Receive today the gospel message that the Son of God took upon his own body your sin. Do not be content with, this, with, the, with the belief that he is a Savior. Make him your Savior. Believe that he is yours. Believe that he had died to atone, not just for sinners in general, but for you. Believe that he died and that he rose again, not for the world in general, but for you. For your sin. You must embrace his individual kingdom duty to believe the gospel, be reconciled to God through the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Let's pray together. Father and our God, we we thank you that your kingdom is indeed coming. That we have the first fruits of your kingdom. As our Lord Jesus establishes churches, as his word is proclaimed, as he calls men and women and boys and girls out of darkness and into light, by your Spirit's power we are given abilities that we previously lacked, desires that we did not have, to see your law as good and perfect and holy and profitable. Father, help us to fix our eyes upon King Jesus, to rest in him alone, and to forsake all other loyalties that would compete against his throne. We ask this in his name.